Amen. Thank you, James. Team, appreciate that. Good to be with you here this morning in, uh, in worship, and thank you. <laughs> thank you. And uh, as good as it is to be with the kids, I'm going to let you go to Kids Church and head out. Those that are kindergarten to grade five, you can head out to Kids Adventure, and thanks for being with us, singing and worship, and we appreciate you being here, and we'll let you head out. But it is good to be here. I obviously expected to be here last week, and things went differently than I expected. Uh, those of you that hadn't heard, I had an unexpected surgery to have apparently an unneeded appendix removed. Um, and uh, that was Saturday, went in, and uh, so I had to text Pastor Marvin, say I won't be there on Sunday, I don't think. And he stepped in and, and preached a wonderful message. And uh, for the first time, some of you have done this, but for the first time for me, I watched our sermon from a hospital room. Never done that before. And uh, Pastor Marvin preached a great message, and I thought, God, if you just didn't want me to preach this morning, there were easier ways. <laughs> To, uh, to get Pastor Marvin to preach. I would hope I would have listened a little bit easier than this. But, but it was, uh, I'm glad to have a great team and great, uh, everyone stepped up. Appreciate that. Thank you for many texts, emails, uh, cards, and everything that we received this past week. Grateful for, uh, for you guys reaching out like that. Uh, thankful especially to one person who texted me and and said, are you sure they took out the right thing? I hear they messed that up sometimes. And I thought that had never occurred to me. New fear unlocked there. And um, uh, I guess I never did get any empirical evidence, but I'm going to trust that, uh, that they did what they needed to do based on my lack of pain afterwards. So, uh, But it's been a different week, and we're grateful for God's provision and God's grace in our lives. and grateful for that. But glad to uh, jump into a new series this morning with you. So I'm going to ask you, if you have your Bible, would you open it up to Genesis, the book of Genesis? And we're going to jump into chapter 37 this morning. Genesis chapter 37. And uh, we're going to jump into a new series called Intended for Good, looking at the life of Joseph. Intended for Good. Looking at the life of Joseph. And here's what I, I'm going to give you the layout of today's, where we're going to go today. Here's where we're going to go. Uh, I want to give you the, I'm going to zoom out on Joseph's story. I want to give you the big picture of Joseph's story. The next six weeks, seven weeks, between here and Palm Sunday, we're going to go in depth into some of the, the particulars of Joseph's story in the scripture. The reason we do that, why we look at people in scripture, because we want to know what we can learn about God through their interaction with God. We don't look at someone in scripture because we want to be like that person per se. We look at someone in scripture because we want to understand what we learn about God through that person's interactions with God. So the next seven weeks between here and Palm Sunday, if you don't know, Easter Sunday is March 30th this year. Between here and Palm Sunday, we'll be looking at the life of Joseph, and we'll go in depth over the next six weeks. But this morning, I'm going to zoom out, and we're going to look at the big picture. So here's where I'm going with this morning's message. Uh, I'm going to give you uh, some context of where we are in the, in the scriptures. We're going to look at two passages from Joseph's life, one at the beginning and one at the end, uh, kind of lengthy passages, I'm going to read for you. One at the beginning of his life and one at the end of his life. 
two points that we learn about God from those uh, accounts in Joseph's life. And then we're going to end with communion together, okay? So that's where we're going this morning. Let me give you some context. I, um, I recently read a, a book uh, called Spare by Prince Harry. Um, I, I'm not really into the royals. I've never watched uh, The Crown. I've never watched the royal weddings or anything. But, but I had the opportunity to, to read this book, and it was one of the best-selling books of 2023. So I, uh, so I uh, took some time and, uh, and went through it. And here's what I learned about royals. And here's what I learned about royals that's also true about you and me. Your story is always part of a larger story. If you're a royal, your story is always part of a larger story. You may be Queen Elizabeth, or now King Charles, or Prince William, or Prince or Duke Harry, I don't know what he is now, something or nothing. But your story is always part of a larger story. Even Queen Elizabeth, it was interesting for me as I read the book to learn that she couldn't just do anything she wanted to do just because she was the queen. She actually had things, the parameters that were put on her that was always something lurking in the background that was the palace. It was always the palace said this or the palace wants this. Because while the queen was queen for a while and in her case a long while, the palace was stewarding a legacy that went thousands of years. Thousands of years before And their hope is thousands of years in the future. And they were looking out for the legacy of the royalty of England. Because anyone's story is always a part of a larger story. In your life, your story is part of a larger story. You're here for a little while, but you're connected to family members. You're connected to a history behind you. And you're connected to a future before you that you're a part of. When we come to Joseph, his story is part of a larger story. And we need to understand that larger story. As we come to Joseph, we're really coming to the third part of a three-part series we've been preaching. Two years ago, we preached a series on Abraham called The Origin Story. And we looked at the life of Abraham as the origin of our faith. And we said that Abraham, with Abraham, God started an amazing new chapter in the story. And that's a story of redemption, a story of reconciliation that God decided he was not going to leave sinful humanity to just be on its own apart from him, that God desired that there would be a way for humans to be forgiven and be in relationship with him. And so he starts with a man named Abraham, and he makes a covenant with him. And he gives a promise to him that we looked at in Genesis chapter 12, and it says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, which was his name before Abraham, God changed it, Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here's the key statement. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so God starts with Abram, Abraham, and he says, look, here's what I'm doing. Through you, all the families of the earth I'm going to bless, but I'm starting with you. 
And the reason we called Abraham the origin story is because he's a person of faith. He has faith that when God says go, he's going to go. He has faith that when God says you're going to have a son in your old age, even though you don't have any children, and I'm going to make you into a great nation, that he'll have a son in his old age. He has faith that if he takes that son and gives that son back to God, that God will somehow still fulfill his promise in making him into a great nation. He's a man of faith. So is the origin of our faith. And we all who follow Jesus are people of faith. That's where the story starts. Then last year, we picked up on Abraham's grandson, Jacob. Now, you say, well, why'd you skip over his son? Abraham did have a son named Isaac. So it went Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But basically... We're not told a lot about Isaac, to be, to be honest. There's about one, two chapters on Isaac's life. And uh, then it jumps to Jacob, and there's ten chapters on Jacob's life. So we spent some time on Jacob. In fact, recently, some of you know, Wendy and I have a son named Isaac. And recently he asked me, he said, why did you name me after someone who's basically a placeholder? <laughs> and I said, I feel like he's more than a placeholder. He's an important placeholder, but we had our reasons um, but it does feel like sometimes Isaac is a little bit of a placeholder because you got about a couple chapters on him, and then it jumps to Jacob. And the, and, and the life of Jacob we call the unstoppable blessing. And here's why. Because Jacob was a conniver, was a deceiver, was a manipulator. Jacob tried to run away from God's calling and blessing like no one else perhaps tries to run away from God's calling and blessing. But God said, the blessing is going to come through Jacob. He had a twin brother who was older, Esau, and normally the, the blessings all come through the older brother. But God said, I'm doing something different. I'm bringing it through the younger brother, and it's going through Jacob. And as much as Jacob tried to run as much as Jacob tried to live a life that was not pleasing to God, at the end of the story, what we saw is the blessing went through Jacob's life. The unstoppable blessing. And now we come to Joseph. Uh, Jacob uh, had, after Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons and Joseph was one of them. And he has 12 sons. So here's what's going to happen. Up to this point in the story, the blessing's gone through individuals. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now it's going to go through a nation, the nation of Israel. And that nation is going to be founded with 12 heads or 12 tribes, all sons or grandsons of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons by four wives. You thought the Bible was boring. You can read about Jacob's life. He had 12 sons, four different women. And these 12 sons are going to start the nation of Israel. So at the beginning of Joseph's story, Joseph's story from chapter 37 of Genesis to chapter 50 really solves two problems that we're going to see at the end of it. The first problem is this. If this is going to be a nation, the family has to stay together. And you might think that's easy unless you have brothers and sisters. If this is going to be a nation... These brothers have to stay together, which isn't that easy because Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, and they didn't stay together. Jacob had two sons. I mean, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, and they didn't stay together. And now Jacob has 12 sons, and he needs them to stay together. 
if they are going to form the start of this nation. And in the passage we're going to read in just a moment, you'll see it's not easy that they are going to stay together. The second thing you need if you're going to form a nation is you need them to survive. You need them to keep on living. And there's about to be a famine that is going to uh, just encompass a large part of the world where Jacob's family lives. And many people are going to die. But Jacob's family needs to live, so how will they survive? So you got these two problems that Joseph's life ultimately solves. And so let's look at that. Genesis chapter 37. Turn there this morning. Genesis chapter 37. Here's the beginning of Joseph's story. And, um, and I said we're going to see two truths that come out of this about God that are important for us to understand this morning. Genesis chapter 37, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing his, the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, so uh, in the course of time, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. So those are interchangeable. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, let's just pause there for a second. You see the problems already coming up, right? We got favoritism, we got envy, we got jealousy, and we have hate coming into the family. And this family's got to stay together. It it says that uh, Jacob gave Joseph a coat of many colors. It's a hard phrase to translate. Um, the, the literal phrase that I was talking to Dr. Marvin Wilson, who's an Old Testament scholar, he says the, the literal Hebrew phrase is a coat of extremities. Uh, and often it's translated a coat of many colors, but it's a coat of extremities. And more significant than the color was the length. It would have been a coat that came past Joseph's wrists and down to his ankles. And anyone who's wearing a garment like that What you know is this, they're not out in the field doing the work. They're not the ones getting dirty. They're the ones standing back and watching everyone else get dirty. They're the supervisor. They're the boss. They're the one that's running things. And so essentially, Jacob giving this coat to Joseph is saying, he's the one in charge. Now, if any of you came from a large family, or anyway, just a few brothers or sisters. Imagine if one of your parents did that. Now, this is the second youngest out of 12 of them. And Jacob says, he's my favorite. Now, some of you might feel like your parents did that. But Jacob actually did it. He said, this is my favorite. And they all hated him for it. They all hated him for it. And then it goes on. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf rose up and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. 
His brothers said to him, are you indeed going to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers. And said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Then a little later in the story, the brothers are out tending the the flocks. And Jacob sends Joseph, hey, go check on your brothers. They're out tending the flocks, go check on them. Let's pick it up in verse 18. They saw him from afar, that is his brothers. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. That's the start of Joseph's story. And we see immediately the problem that the family is not going to stay together. In fact, one of them almost gets killed off, but we need them all to survive, and we need them all to be together. And how is it going to happen? We're going to look in a second at the end of Joseph's life. I want to read you a passage, but here's what goes on in between. In between that we'll get into over the next six weeks, Joseph's going to be sold as a slave, and he'll become a slave in a man named Potiphar's house. Uh, He'll work as a slave there and serve his master well, but eventually he will be falsely accused of sexual assault upon Potiphar's wife. And then he's going to be thrown into prison. And he gets thrown into prison undeservedly. He's there for no good reason. But there's where he finds himself. Goes from the chosen son wearing the the robe and, and getting all the accolades to now being forgotten in an Egyptian prison. While he's there, he'll be helpful to some people in the prison. In fact, he'll be helpful to some pretty important people that are... Uh, Servants of Pharaoh. 
And when they get out, he just says, hey, remember me when you get out. Put in a good word for me, but they forget him. Anyway, labors in the prison for years more. Eventually, Pharaoh has a dream. And he needs someone to interpret it. And the servant remembers that Joseph was able to interpret dreams. And Joseph actually interprets the dream of Pharaoh. And through that, in a series of circumstances, one of the interpretations of the dream is there's going to be seven years of famine and you need to prepare for it. And Pharaoh says, well, who better to prepare us for famine than this one who interpreted my dream? And so he puts Joseph in charge of a food collection and distribution program. And he makes him the second in charge in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. In the course of time, the famine comes. All the Egyptians come looking for food, and Joseph distributes it. But not just the Egyptians. People from countries all around find out that Egypt has food, and they come offering to buy food, including Joseph's own brothers and father. They don't recognize him at first, and we'll look more into that in depth in the coming weeks. But ultimately, Joseph reveals himself for who he is. And we find the families brought together again. And then we come to the end of the story. The end of Joseph's story in Genesis, but also the end of Jacob's life. And chapter 50 gives the account of that. And I want to read that for you. It almost reads like a Hollywood script. I just want to read it for you of what happens when Jacob dies. So here's the scene. Jacob has just finished blessing his sons, giving his final, really, literally deathbed words to his sons. To some he gives blessings. He also chastises. He corrects. Gives some harsh words. But he gave his last words to his 12 sons. And then in the last verse of chapter 49 says this, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Jacob died. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days how significant this is. There's no other people in the Old Testament that we are told are embalmed except Jacob and Joseph. They're the only, because the Egyptians did the embalming and the Egyptians embalmed Egyptians. But they so held Joseph and his father Jacob in high regard that they embalmed Jacob through this 40-day process. They wept for him 70 days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh saying, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak to the ears of Pharaoh saying, my father made me swear, saying I'm about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, his father's household, 
Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. You can imagine like a royal parade of a funeral going up, honoring Jacob and Joseph and their family. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abal Matzraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abram brought, bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. We need to pause there because there's tension now. Their father's dead and he goes back to Egypt with his brothers. His brothers that sold him into slavery. His brothers that wanted to kill him. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. We don't know whether Jacob said that or not. But they said that he said it. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. We need to pause there too. Did you hear what that said? His brothers also came, and what's it say? Fell down before him. Sound familiar? Sound like a dream about a few chapters back, earlier in Joseph's life, that his brothers now bow down before him, fulfilling the dream that God said and God gave him that would come about. And then we're about to read what is definitely the most significant verse in Joseph's life. Probably the most significant verse in all of the book of Genesis. Perhaps one of the most significant verses in the entirety of the Old Testament. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. This is the most, the entirety of the book of Genesis for 50 chapters, I think you could argue has been building up to this verse. 
that the plans of God, that what man meant for evil, that God meant it for good. That statement is so relationally and theologically packed. I mean, think of it just as a relational statement. It starts out, you meant evil against me. You, my brothers, my family, the ones who are supposed to love and protect me, the ones who are supposed to be the closest to me, you meant evil for me. Ever been at a family gathering, maybe a family dinner, and somebody just drops a bomb right at the dinner table? And all of a sudden, everyone just looks down at their plates, and all you hear is the scraping of silverware on plates and people uncomfortably swallowing. I mean, that's this moment. Joseph says, you meant evil for me. I mean, let's not beat around the bush. You sold me into slavery. You wanted to kill me. You meant evil for me. But the statement is resolved with this incredible theological truth where he says, but God meant it for good. That God meant it for good. Here's the first truth we learn, and it has to do with God's strength. God is powerful enough to bring about good from the evil intentions that have come against you. That Joseph, having been undeservedly sold into slavery, had been undeservedly and unfairly thrown into prison and accused of things he did not do. But God is powerful enough to bring about good from the evil intentions that have come against you. That came against Joseph and you. You're going to go through some stuff in this life. If you live just a little while, you're going to go through some stuff in this life. And let me tell you, it's not all going to be fair. It's not all going to be deserved. That's the result of sin and the fall coming into this world. That it's not all equal anymore. It's not all you put in A and you get out B. What happens is sometimes you put in A and you get out pain. And you get out hurt. And you get out betrayal. And you get out being forgotten. And you get out what you didn't deserve and what's unfairly come your way. And how do you deal with it? What Joseph's story tells us is that God is strong enough that no matter what the evil intentions of others around you or just living in a broken world brings your way, that God can bring it about for good that God can still bring his good out from it. That even though the brothers did everything they could <laughs> to say this dream isn't going to come about, no, this isn't going to happen, that God was at work the whole time. But this is how God always works. I mean, this is God's, this is God's way of working at times. Think about it. I mean, does Joseph's story sound a little bit familiar? Think about 2,000 years after Joseph, 2,000 years before we're living now. Jesus. Jesus walking this earth falsely accused, wrongfully convicted through a mock trial, through no fault of his own, crucified and killed. Evil intentions of men on a cross. 
that God turned around and meant for good. Evil intentions that men meant for evil and God meant for good, bringing about the saving of many lives. For Joseph, saving many from a famine. For Jesus, saving many from sin. That this is the way that God works. This is the way that God worked in the life of Joseph. It's the way that he works for us. And the truth is that no matter the evil intentions coming your way, that God is always at work. God is bringing about his plan that Jesus is coming again, that evil, all evil will be judged and all things will be made right. That's where the story's going. Jesus is coming back, all evil will be judged and all things will be made right. That's where the story's going. So yes, what men meant for evil, God meant for good, for the saving of many lives. So yes, you can know that when things look bleak, that God is still at work and nothing and no one can stop his plan from coming about. But if we leave it there, if that's the only point we take away from the larger story of Joseph's life, I fear we miss one of the most significant lessons of Joseph's life. If we leave it at, you'll go through hard times, but trust God is at work, we miss the greatest news in this story, and dare I say, we miss the gospel. Here's what I think happens every time we come to the Joseph story. We see ourselves in the position of Joseph. We see a person who experienced unexplained, undeserved, and unfair things in their life, and we say, oh, Lord, that's me. Finally, somebody gets me. Finally, somebody understands what my life's been like. And if God can come through for Joseph, then God can come through for me. And that is all true. Don't let go of that. That's true. But if we look at this story through another lens and we say, well, Joseph may be kind of like the Christ figure in this story. I think we have to ask then, who are we? Who are we in the story? We're the brothers. We're the ones in need of forgiveness. We're the ones in need of saving. Listen to the words of the brothers and see if it does not sound more like us. Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph spoke and wept and they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. We're the ones who've transgressed against God. We're the ones who said, we want to go our own way. We're the ones that said, we're going to sell you out. We'd rather do it our way than your way. We're the brothers in the story. We're the people who were against God and wanting to go our way. And how does God respond? He responds the way Joseph responds when we come to him in repentance. Joseph said, so do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is how God responds to you when you and I come to him for forgiveness and repentance. This is the gospel. This is Jesus on the cross who says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. This is grace and this is the love of God. 
If you and I come away from the story of Joseph hearing that even in the midst of hardship and unexplained and unfair difficulty that God is still at work, we have learned something of God's strength. But if we walk away having only heard that, we have missed opportunity to learn something of God's love and mercy and grace. When you understand that you and I are the brothers deserving of judgment, but we have become the recipients of undeserved mercy and goodness, we are in awe not only of God's strength, but of his love. Truth about God's love is God is loving enough to forgive and redeem the evil intentions that have come from within you. Not only can God, is God powerful enough to take care of the evil that's going to come from outside of you, but here's the gospel. God is loving enough to forgive and redeem the evil intentions that come from within you. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we're like G.K. Chesterton, who when the London Times newspaper asked, what's the problem with the world? Chesterton wrote back a letter to the editor that said, I am. Because the evil within my own heart, the evil that comes from from my life, that's the problem with the world. And the good news of the gospel and the good news that we get from Joseph's story that points to the cross is that God is powerful enough to forgive and redeem that that comes out of our life and our hearts as well. And so we learn something of God's strength, that the evil that is outside of us that God is strong enough to turn for good. That what people may mean for evil in our lives, God can turn it for good and will. But we also learn something of God's love. That God, even the evil inside our own heart, that he's able to forgive and redeem the evil intentions that have come from within you. So now in response to that, I'm going to ask the ushers to hand out the communion elements. And we're going to close our time together in communion by receiving and taking communion. And they're going to pass these out to you now. And we're going to respond to this story and to God's word by receiving communion. God's good intentions and his covenant promises culminate in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I want you to understand what you're looking at when you look at this. I mean, through the years, obviously, this has looked very different. And not until the last few years, I guess, has it looked like this. You know, I mean, when it started and Jesus was at that Passover meal with his disciples, and obviously, this looked very different when he had a cup and the unleavened bread that was there that he'd break with his disciples and share the implications of what this means, of his body and his blood. But I want us to be clear on what we are looking at as we're a part of this larger story. Because your story is always a part of a larger story. And there is probably no more significant and obvious time than when you and I come to communion that we are part of a bigger story, part of our lives. And when you are looking at this little piece of bread and juice in front of you. Here's what you're looking at. You're looking at the call of Abraham become a reality. 
you're looking at Genesis chapter 12, where God said to Abraham, I will make you a blessing and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. How'd that come about? Through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Jacob's kids and a nation who God dealt with to show himself to the world. And ultimately through that nation, his own son Jesus comes. Gives his life on a cross, undeservedly, unfairly crucified. Man meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Resurrected three days later, defeating death in the grave and offering to all who will believe and put their faith in Christ forgiveness and redemption and life. And that's what you're looking at. You're looking at the words that God spoke to Abraham some 4,000 years ago, offered to you, that you might receive blessing, that you might receive forgiveness. Because your story is part of a larger story. So let's take the side that has the bread in it and open that up. The Apostle Paul wrote these words. He said, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As I read those words this week, thinking about the Joseph story, the words that hit me uh, maybe differently than before is on the night he was betrayed. On the night when his disciple that he had been spent time with and invested in, the one he had, he had shared life with for, for years, betrayed him, turned him over, sold him out. On the night he was betrayed, unfairly, undeservedly, what man meant for evil, on that night, he sat with his disciples. He said, this is my body which is for you. Lord, we thank you for the body of Jesus Christ. We thank you for it being given for us. We thank you that though it was crucified by men who meant evil, Lord, that you turned it around and made it something good, not just for us, but for all the world who would believe and put their faith in you, Lord. And so as we take this bread, we remember the body of Jesus. Let's take the bread together now. And then if you turn that cup over and peel the side off that has the juice. And as we do that, Lord, we ask that you would peel off the coverings of our hearts. Those things we have kept hidden from you, would you expose them gently, Lord, to our heart and our lives? Because, Lord, we know through their exposure and through our recognition and repentance of them that we receive forgiveness and grace. And so we come, Lord, and we ask that through the blood of Jesus Christ that we would receive the forgiveness of our sins and our evil ways. 
And so let me give you a moment, if there's anything in your life and in your heart between you and God, some unconfessed sin or something you need to repent of, that you would take this moment to give that over to God, to repent and receive forgiveness from him. It's not my words that make us right with you. It's not sitting in a church service that makes us right with you. It's not even hearing and memorizing scripture that makes us right with you. It's not our right theology, our right thinking. None of that. Right, the only thing that makes us right is our faith blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us. That's the only way we receive forgiveness. It's the only way we can be made right relationship with you, Lord. And so we remember that this morning. We remember that Jesus died on a cross, rose again, and that is our hope. And that is our trust. And we proclaim that death until you come again and judge evil and make all things right trust in you. And it's our hope and our faith in the blood of Jesus. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for that shed blood of Jesus and the forgiveness that we receive through it. And we take this cup and remember story of Joseph over the next few weeks. But this morning what we learn is this, that God is strong and whatever evil might come your way from without, from people, from circumstances, God's able to bring about his good. And God is loving and even the evil intentions of your own heart and the sin and evil that you and I have committed that through the blood of Jesus, he's made a way to be forgiven. And we take those truths away from this this morning. Let's stand and close our service and worship together.